Welcome. This is the Solar Disruption Theory Podcast, where our goal is to truly transform the industry and shake up the norm. Each month, we'll be sitting down with CEOs, activists, and other solar experts to see how far the rabbit hole goes. Entrepreneur, thought leader, and clean energy enthusiast Brett Bushy is our co-host and the CEO of Freedom Forever. With his help, Freedom Forever has become laser-focused on serving others and the planet. This caused the company to make the Inc. 500 list of fastest-growing companies two years in a row. With his solar knowledge and extensive broadcast experience at CNN, Fox, and AMC, we'll get a deep look into the world of solar and how we're disrupting its core. Today, we're excited to sit down with Chief Visionary of Dividend Finance, Eric White. As CEO, Eric offers innovative financial solutions and a unique financial strategy taken from his in-depth experience in the energy sector. Eric's 360 perspective as operator, investor, and transactional banker, which was developed from experience sitting on all sides of the table, helps him leverage a unique perspective of the home energy financing space. Eric champions Dividend's core belief that people matter which means treating customers and consumers as family and holding partners accountable for doing the same. Eric is relentlessly leading Dividend to achieve the highest quality and compliance standards in the industry through Dividend's core value of doing the right thing at all times. During Eric's tenure, he has assembled an executive team of some of the sharpest leaders in the consumer credit, home energy lending, and renewable industries, and we can't wait to pick his brain. We have harnessed the power of the sun. What matters now is what we do with it. This is Solar Disruption Theory. Created by Freedom Forever. Hey everyone, welcome to the Solar Disruption Theory podcast. I'm Sean McCready and with me as always is Freedom Forever CEO Brett Bushy. Today, we're joined by Eric White, CEO and Chief Visionary of Dividend Finance. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Really excited to have the conversation with you today. Eric, it's so nice to finally actually meet you on a podcast. Uh, We've done a lot of business together, but we haven't connected. So it's great to connect over a podcast. Yeah, I must say it's it must be the first time I've ever actually met someone over a podcast. So, uh, you know, the technology does wonderful things. Bringing the world together. I love it. That's awesome. And you're in San Francisco, correct? That is right. And we actually have the Matrix 4 filming right outside of my office right now. So if you hear any crazy sounds, uh, it's probably some sort of special effects pyrotechnic explosion on the street. That is so cool. That is so awesome. We don't have anything fun like that. You'll just hear some people on the phones, if anything. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, uh, and I read that you actually went to Tulane, is that correct? That's right. And now are you from New Orleans? No, so I'm actually originally from the East Coast, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, um, but uh, went to Tulane after my dad encouraged me to go check out the school because he thought I was uh, socially awkward <laughs> and needed to develop better social skills. So uh, he, he likes, to, likes to joke that uh, his plan backfired in the sense that uh, I became a little too social during my time in New Orleans. <laughs> I hear that place can do that to a person. That's great. That's absolutely right. How long did you spend there? So I was there for four years. And interestingly, I was actually there during Hurricane Katrina. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, that was that was obviously a, a very kind of transformative experience in my life. Um, after having spent my freshman year there, really fell in love with the city uh, and had driven down with my dad from Baltimore in middle of August to start my sophomore semester uh, in the fall. And uh, about two days before school started was when they evacuated the city. So over the course of the next two weeks, I drove from Baton Rouge to Austin to Little Rock to Blacksburg, Virginia to Baltimore and uh, enrolled in Hopkins for the semester. I uh, was interviewed by the local TV station where, where I thanked all the administrators of Hopkins for uh, allowing uh, displaced students to attend. Uh, and then I went home that night and realized that I would have to live with my parents for the rest of the semester. Oh, and I had some right. friends that were, uh, were students at Middlebury, which uh, is a college up in Vermont, that had not started classes yet. And they convinced me to drive up to Middlebury with them and uh, I actually uh, ended up spending the entire semester up there. Gotcha. That's a wild journey. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, I'd say the university itself is the largest employer in the city of New Orleans. And, you know, we were really some of the first people back in the city the following January, following the hurricane. So uh, going back into a city that's kind of 
experienced such a, a ma- massive disaster right. uh, really changes your perspective on a lot of things. Uh, you know, for me, it, it really kind of uh, uh, put kind of my focus on, uh, you know, what uh, appreciating what I had yeah. and, you know, n- not realizing that it could go away in a minute tomorrow. I mean, we were quite frankly lucky to be able to even return to school. I think the students returning to the city was really a, a big part of the energy in the city and was critical in its, its kind of revival and, and rebuilding. And o- over the next couple of years, Tulane really established itself as a leader in community service um, across all universities nationally. Right. Um, for, for obvious reasons there. But, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of New Orleans. I still go back for Jazz Fest every year. Um, it's truly a special place. That's great. Uh, so you do get back every year then that's awesome. That's, that's a good thing to have, I think. Absolutely. So fast forward to present, uh, you, you refer to your perspective as sitting on all sides of the table. So how have your experiences professionally or personally brought you to where you are now? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, when I was in high school, uh, or really since I was a little kid, uh, I had this belief that I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to be president. Um, so while I was in high school, uh, I uh, applied to be a U.S. Senate page. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with what a, a Senate page is, uh, these are, if you turn on CNBC2, or C-SPAN2, rather, uh, and you look at the Senate rostrum, you'll see a bunch of uh, teenage-age uh, kids sitting around the rostrum in blue suits. Um, and really, their role is to support the operations of the Senate, which means running messages uh, from senators to committee meetings, uh, uh, getting senators water, collecting their speeches, uh, you know, uh, uh, tracking down senators for votes. Um, but you're, uh, as, as a page, you really get a firsthand experience uh, of how, how politics uh, really works. So, uh, you know, luckily I was accepted as a, uh, as a member of that page program and was Tom Daschle's uh, page uh, during the 103rd Congress. Uh, which happened to be uh, a fairly tenuous time in our nation's history. Uh, for one, it was when we invaded Iraq right? Uh, in the second Gulf War, and it was also a, a very evenly uh, split Senate, 51-49 Republican-Democrat. Uh, so uh, very frequently, Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time, was required uh, in his role as president of the Senate, which is uh, the, uh, another role of the vice president, to actually cast tie-breaking votes. So had a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, a very uh, a tough time in Washington that honestly looks like a, like a walk in the park compared to today. Right. Um, but after having spent, you know, nearly six months uh, seeing how politics works firsthand, I uh, really determined that, you know, I, I felt that I could make more of an impact in my life uh, in the private sector and was actually quite discouraged and uh, underwhelmed by, you know, how, how the nation operated at its highest level. What a unique perspective, though, to be able to sit and see that the, the inner workings from that perspective. Yeah, and, and especially at that that age. Yeah. Um, when you're really kind of still finding finding who you are right. as an individual. Yeah. So it, it was it was eye opening in in many ways, some good, some bad. But I think the the good news is I'm not a politician, so I think I made the right decision. That's not to say that it, I wouldn't be one in the future, but um, uh, at least for the time being, I'm quite happy staying out of the uh, public eye. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you could just kind of walk me through, um, you know, how you ended up where you are now with, with dividend, uh, where, how did that journey begin? So I'll kind of come back to the all sides of the table question yeah. that you originally asked, but, uh, while I was studying, uh, undergrad at Tulane, I, uh, I studied abroad for a semester in Vienna, Austria of all places. Oh, wow. Um, why Vienna? because I looked at uh, all the different potential uh, locations that Tulane students could go, and I found the one where n- I didn't know anyone else that was going. And, you know, that was kind of a, a deliberate decision to really get an authentic experience Yeah. where I was put, you know, put outside of my comfort zone. And during the course of that semester, um, there was actually a group of Louisiana businessmen attending an OPEC summit, uh, OPEC's the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries in Vienna at the time, I happened to know them from my time in New Orleans, and they had reached out to me and ended up spending about a week attending meetings with them and became really intrigued just by the concept of energy in general, not necessarily clean energy, hydrocarbons, just energy in general, and 
when I returned to New Orleans the following semester, as I was kind of considering my, ju- my, my internship opportunities between junior and senior year, uh, I kind of uh, came to the determination that I wanted to be an energy investment banker. Okay. So ended up uh, applying for a position at Merrill Lynch in their global and energy and power team as a summer analyst. Got the role, spent three months uh, working uh, on that team in Houston and ultimately took a full-time role after I graduated from Tulane and really spent the first several years of my career kind of on the dark side of energy. This was at, this was at a time when shale drilling was really kind of just getting started. And, you know, it, it was quite exciting, quite frankly, to be in the middle of uh, a, a massive energy revolution in, in the U.S., which, you know, traditionally or historically had been a net importer of uh, of oil and gas. Yeah, you were in there right during a huge transition then. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I think there was a, a little bit of a myth at the time, uh, largely created by Aubrey McClendon, the late Aubrey McClendon, who was the CEO of Chesapeake Energy and one of the most active and successful, unconventional natural gas developers in the U.S. But, uh, you know, he, he, he would often refer to natural gas as a bridge to a more sustainable future. And I think, you know, it was kind of widely accepted at the time that natural gas was uh, really a stepping stone to something cleaner. But at that time, I don't, th- I don't think it was clear when the cleaner alternative would eventually uh, emerge as kind of a mainstream uh, and widely accepted form of energy. And so, you know, I, I was heads down, uh, really kind of involved with uh, U.S. shale development for quite a while also spent some time in the master limited partnership structure sector, which is oil and gas pipeline companies and kind of the midstream side, um, as well as oil field services. Um, but, you know, one kind of interesting anecdote, about three weeks onto the job as a full-time analyst, uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, which obviously, you know, sent the world into a tailspin right. as a young, inexperienced investment banking analyst. You know, it was kind of, it was a wild experience seeing how that kind of impacted our financial system. Um, but somewhat ironically, uh, the price of oil and the price of natural gas at the time remained quite high. So throughout, you know, the, the kind of first 12 months of the downturn, we were actually very busy um, within our sector, um, despite the rest of the economy being virtually shut down. Um, but oil and gas did remain hot. Um, and uh, you know, following the Bank of America acquisition of Merrill Lynch, uh, spent a few more years in Houston before eventually moving to uh, then uh, what's often called BAML or B of A ML's uh, London office um, to uh, focus on more international uh, energy projects. So, you know, looked at a lot of natural gas projects in Russia, covered offshore drillers in Norway, uh, looked at deals in pretty much every continent. Uh, but, you know, uh, still wasn't sold on oil and gas as kind of the long-term future or even, or even necessarily gas at that point as the uh, bridge to a more sustainable future. That, you know, so this is really when I first started uh, having my doubts about, uh, you know, that myth that I mentioned before. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, between the, the short days in London during the winter, um, given it's so far north, and the you know, day in, day out grind of investment banking, uh, you know, eventually decided that uh, I needed to to kind of move on uh, sooner rather than later from that particular career and was recruited by a private equity firm in the San Francisco Bay Area um, to uh, join their team. So moved back to the States in 2011 and joined a fund called American Infrastructure Funds based down in Foster City, which really focused on real asset Uh, investment. So uh, by real assets, I really mean infrastructure, real energy, or sorry, real property and energy. And, you know, in that context, we would buy operating businesses involved in those three kind of sub verticals of the real asset space and either take them public, sell them, uh, or have some other sort of monetization event. Mm -hmm. And uh, within the kind of energy aspect of that, we did a lot of dirty stuff. We did some clean stuff. I think, you know, the good news is uh, in the process, I learned a heck of a lot about really creative ways to structure financial transactions. And after having worked there for a couple of years, really started to see an opportunity to 
build something on my own that was focused on aggregating what I call micro-infrastructure assets. So these are kind of sub $1 million infrastructure assets. So an example, a perfect example would be a rooftop solar installation, um, but kind of aggregating them using more of a platform-based approach and using that to drive more capital efficiency and what historically had been uh, various kind of niche, uh, subscale, mispriced asset classes. And uh, around late 2012, early 2013, started looking at solar in earnest and you know, was really uh, taken aback by what I quickly learned. So unlike when I was uh, in my investment banking days, when, you know, renewables, at least in the U.S., were not really a kind of a mainstream, widely accepted form of energy, maybe with the exception of West Texas wind, some geothermal up in the geysers in Northern California, um, you know, maybe some concentrating solar uh, in the desert. Uh, but it, it was certainly by no means a meaningful part of the the nation's energy uh, generation source. Um, but you know, when I when I started looking at solar again in in late 2012, early 2013, uh, realized that 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 dynamic had dramatically changed. You know, per- personally, I'm I'm a, a firm believer that financial incentives and economic incentives drive outcomes, and you know, dis- despite uh, the benefit, the environmental benefit of uh, renewable energy having existed since the advent of n- renewable energy, absent having a strong and compelling economic case to support it, you know, would would not make it a long-term viable opportunity. But uh, as I was looking at at the at the sector, I realized that it changed thanks to the Chinese uh, subsidization of modules uh, in the kind of 2010 timeframe. Over a very short period of time, we saw the cost of rooftop installations in the U.S. drop by close to 65 percent. I think that was over maybe a six-year period or perhaps even less. And as the module costs dropped, economies of scale were realized throughout the rest of the value chain, which drove further cost reductions. And, you know, within a very short window, solar was no longer this West Coast progressive dream, um, but there was actually a strong economic case that supported it, not just in California, but across the country. So with that kind of newfound understanding of of where the solar industry in in general, and more particularly residential solar, had evolved, sort of looking at the way that solar was being financed, residential rooftop solar, that is, uh, in the U.S. And at the time, the lease and power purchase agreement uh, was, you know, the predominant way that uh, people funded a rooftop installation on their house. Right. And it's, it's an, it was an incredibly effective way to expand initial, initial proliferation of solar. But being the kind of finance geek that I am, started looking at economic value proposition and just kind of the overall big picture implications of lease PPA and other types of third-party ownership financing. And it became abundantly clear that, you know, in, in the kind of the early lease and PPA model, in many cases, the consumer was kind of getting the short end of the stick when it came came to, you know, realizing economic benefits from the the PV system on their roof, and not not too dissimilar from a lot of other class, asset classes I had looked at uh, that were kind of inefficient for one reason or the other. The majority of the economic value generated from rooftop solar was going to the uh, finance providers, which in this case were the TPO uh, tax equity investors. So I, I said, you know, is there a better way to really uh, kind of build a mousetrap here that creates better alignment of incentives uh, across, you know, this, this solar ecosystem and ultimately really delivers value home to the consumer uh, who has the system on the roof right. at the end of the day. So with that, you know, that ha- having been said, began exploring whether a more traditional loan product model could be applied to the residential solar space in a way that you know accomplished the thing, things I just mentioned. And you know, within less than 12 months of you know initially kind of researching this crazy idea that I had, I was resigning from my job in private equity and moving into my co-founder's house and launching the company out of the living room. Wow. So it was a true uh, San Francisco startup story minus the garage. That's exactly what I was going to say. You're, you're just missing a garage. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great story. Yep. 
So was it just you, your partner, and Mowgli? Uh, so, so actually, for really all of 2013, while working a day job in private equity, you know, we were spending the, pretty much all night every night working on developing this concept, this product, this idea. And we actually had a full-time employee, maybe even two full-time employees, before we had uh, left our jobs in private equity. So we were we were really blowing and going, and you know, by call it you know the second quarter of 2014, we probably had six or seven people on the team, and we're pretty darn close to being able to originate our first loan. Um, you know, l- luckily, in, in kind of when we first had this idea, we began applying for lenders' licenses. So as a, a non-bank lender, we're required to be licensed in each state where we operate or alternatively operate outside of the licensing regime. But in California in particular, the application process takes a year in and of itself. Oh, wow. So you know, we had the foresight to ensure that as soon as we had this idea that we would kind of get that on file, uh, which you know, put us in a position to really uh, be able to begin originating loans in the summer of 2014. So it was a very kind of fast initial uh, launch for the company from kind of uh, an idea to actually doing kind of real transactions. And, you know, it was with a team that had never, you know, been exposed or been involved with consumer lending before in their careers. So we were really learning things on the fly. Um, but, you know, we, ha- we had the conviction in the product model that we had developed and the fact that, you know, it, it was really... Uh, a better way to finance solar, you know, relative to what historically had been done. Can you explain a little bit more to the listeners the difference of a TPO versus an unsecured loan? I know that's a big difference. You touched on it, but can you get like specific? Because that's those are the types of things our listeners love to hear. They don't really understand. They think a lot of that benefit to the TPO is going back to the customer in terms of lower payments. But I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Right, so uh, there's really uh, there's a handful of, of differences, but perhaps the biggest difference is with a TPO, which stands for third-party ownership. Uh, so by, by definition, it means a third party owns that system on the consumer's roof. Uh, and as part of owning that system, the, that third party is the beneficiary of the uh, residential or the, the federal investment tax credit associated with that system, which at the time was 30%, today 26%, as well as bonus, in the case of a a TPO system, bonus depreciation uh, and kind of other tax incentives as well. Whereas alternatively with a loan product, you, the owner of the home that has the system on the roof, uh, is the beneficiary of that tax credit. And you're able to, you know, actually apply that credit uh, against your disposable income when it, uh, when it comes time to file your taxes. So that's, that's kind of the, the, big, the kind of biggest uh, difference. But with TPO financing, whether it be a lease or a power purchase agreement, uh, more often than not, you're uh, likely to see what's called a, a contractual escalator in your lease term. So uh, for example, if, uh, if you're being sold a lease product, typically what a sales rep would do is they would look at your current utility bill and come up with a lease structure that allows you to pay somewhere between 10 and 20% less than your current uh, monthly utility bill via a lease agreement. And with the contractual escalator, each year your monthly payment will step up by the percentage of that escalator. So for example, if you had a 3% escalator in the second year, your monthly payments will be 3% higher than in your first year. And, you know, I think that's, that's a really important distinction from a loan in the sense that with a, uh, an unsecured loan, your monthly payments are, are flat through the life of the loan. And in an environment where utility price, prices historically have escalated by somewhere between 2 and 5% on average per year over the last 30 years, uh, you're able to realize more benefit in, uh, from, from, by virtue of having that solar system on your roof than you would have if your upside is capped by that contractual escalator. And to the extent utility rates actually go down in your market for 
a year or two years, which isn't inconceivable and happens all the time, you're actually lose, you're worse off on a relative basis because your lease payment is actually going up while the alternative uh, energy source, which would have been the, the utility grid, uh, those costs have actually uh, gone down. So you, you end up in a situation where you're actually upside down uh, from a monthly cash flow standpoint for a period of time. Um, so, you know, the, so, you know, the biggest takeaway is with a loan, you own the system, you're the beneficiary of the tax credit, and you realize uncapped economic upside in a, in a uh, escalating utility price environment. And how do you see all of this evolving over the next, you know, five years, decade? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, for one, I would say from, from the time that, you know, I, I got involved in the industry, seeing pretty massive maturation in, in really every part of it. But, you know, I, I remember sitting in, on, on, in, in offices in New York five, six years ago when we were kind of first coming to market, meeting with you know, very polished uh, investors on Wall Street and, you know, trying to explain the, the credit case for why it made sense to invest in residential solar loans. You know, they were looking at us like we were from outer space. And... <laughs> At this point, residential solar loans are very much a mainstream uh, invest, investment or asset class for insurance companies, for banks, for pension funds, um, for asset managers. And there's been a, a massive amount of securitization activity uh, in the residential solar loan sector and the lease and PPA sector over the last five or six years. And even within kind of the lease and PPA uh, investment world, uh, I would say that there's a much better understanding and appreciation for the nuance that's associated with a with a tax equity financing product, which leases and PPAs are, uh, within the broader institutional investor community. So, you know, we've come a heck of a long way from where we were, and you know that just really applies to the the uh, residential uh, financing investment uh, side of things. But really, in all parts of of the solar sector, uh, we've seen you know, the industry mature, whereas, you know, five years ago, the lion's share of the U.S. residential installation market was controlled by really three or four uh, parties, biggest being Solar City, uh, that probably collectively had nearly 65, if not 70% of the overall market. Today, a significant part of the market, you know, 50% or more is actually controlled by local and regional contractors. And I think that was also, uh, that, that, that wasn't a part of our original thesis when we were developing our loan product, but within uh, a short period of time after having spent quite a bit of, or having had quite a bit of exposure to residential solar contractors, you know, we saw that paradigm shift uh, that would eventually happen, you know, three or four years before it, it did occur. Um, so, and I could give countless other examples of, of, you know, how the industry has evolved just since I've been involved. Uh, but, you know, going forward, I, I would continue to expect it to go through change, go through phases of maturity. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a much more stable, uh, in some ways boring, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, uh, uh, sector than it was five years ago. Right. Now, I think where it gets really interesting is when you start kind of talking about other distributed resource opportunities um, that kind of sit alongside solar, whether it be battery storage, uh, kind of behind the meter services uh, that can actually be provided to the utility company, whether it's demand response aggregation, uh, load balancing, load optimization, uh, or, or other types of uh, things like that, that uh, it gets really, really interesting. You know, my, my, my personal perspective, and I've kind of had this for quite a while, is that over time, you will see a shift to more, uh, a more distributed model for really all parts of uh, uh, of the world, whether it's related to food, whether it's related to water, um, and energy probably being the best example. And it is a little bit uh, counterintuitive to, when you think about how we've developed uh, the, the energy infrastructure in this country, uh, it's all based on a centralized hub and spoke model where you have single points of failure um, that impact massive amounts of people, uh, you know, that may be, you know, thousands of miles away. And, you know, that's not to mention the fact that 
just makes a lot more sense for the point of energy consumption to be in close geographic proximity to the point of energy generation um, because you don't have to figure out how to actually move it from point A to point B um, across uh, uh, transmission lines because it's, it's kind of right at the same location. So I, I think over time what you'll actually start to see is that the grid will evolve to be no longer the primary source of, uh, of power and actually really a backup source for the end user with the end user owning both generation and storage uh, capabilities on their physical property. Eric, that, that, yeah, that is a great perspective. And one of the things you just hit on is that um, I'm a big history buff myself. And I'm trying to really understand because I don't come from the solar industry and I got involved in free, with Freedom in 2015, I'd love to know what your original thesis was. You talked about what happened with Solar City. One of our guests on the podcast has been Tange Sarah. I know Hayes pretty well. And I'd love to know what your original thesis was because I still try to unpack and figure out what happened with Solar City. They had such breakneck growth. And then all of a sudden you've seen them, you know, decline in the last uh, few years. But I'd love to get your take on that. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, so I guess there's really two questions there. You know, what's my take on, on Solar City, and then what was our original thesis? So, I mean, our original, our original thesis was uh, really to develop uh, creative financial solutions that broke down capital barriers in the distributed resource ecosystem with residential solar loans being our kind of first test case. Uh, you know, it was just so abundantly clear to us that that was a better financial product for a consumer looking to put solar on their home in most cases than uh, anything that previously existed in the market. And uh, over the course of 2013, as we were really diligencing the, the sector, you know, I probably cold called or had warm introductions or other types of conversations with close to 100 residential solar contractors around the country. And during that time, it also be became clear that the local and regional contractor felt underserved by the existing providers of lease and PPA financing in the space. Either they couldn't even access the lease and PPA financing through uh, th those companies, uh, or if they were able to, given there was only a few of them, you know, those providers really did not treat the local and regional contractor uh, uh, in the best way and all, all the time. You know, they, they kind of, the, the, the term or the, the kind of explanation I often give is, when the lease or PPA providers said jump, the local and regional contractors had to say how high, and that's just kind of how how life was. So, uh, based on that feedback that I was consistently hearing from these local and regional contractors, you know, I saw an opportunity uh, alongside the the residential solar loan product that we had begun developing to really support local and regional contractors. Uh, in helping to grow and build their businesses and make them in a, or put them in a position to compete with the vertically integrated national installers like Solar City. I probably should have mentioned before, you know, our original distribution model for residential solar loans was partnering with contractors uh, or solar installers to kind of be our boots on the ground to uh, connect us with the end consumer who ultimately is taking that loan. Um, so kind of a distributed uh, sales model, if you will. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's just so many eye-opening uh, experiences in, in those early interactions with, with local and regional solar installers. You know, I, I remember one example. I was at, at, a, at a contractor's office somewhere in the southeast. I asked them, you know, can you sh show me an example of what, what you use to pitch a consumer in, in, in the form of uh, collateral? And they hand me the sales proposal. And I flip to the second page, and there's what's supposed to be a, a, some sort of bar chart or something, but all I see on the page is an X and a Y axis, and the actual chart itself is, 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 is not populated. Um, so there's obviously you know, a, a major error in the sales proposal, but it was, not a, it was by no means a sexy uh, marketing document that really kind of made a compelling... Uh, case for a consumer to ever consider solar. In fact, if, if I were a consumer and I had seen that proposal, I would have I would have been uh, petrified. So, you know, based on that 
that particular anecdote, we ended up developing a sales proposal tool uh, as part of our kind of uh, overall partner technology portal. So it's been a, a really interesting experience applying you know, my financial skills from investment banking and my experience working with operating businesses and, and private equity and really taking much more of a consultative approach with how we interact with solar installers and ultimately with the goal of making them, helping them make themselves better. And I don't, I don't think you, you see as much uh, inexperience in the solar industry today, whereas five or six years ago, there was a lot of issues, whether it came to workmanship quality, uh, understanding how solar economics actually worked, understanding how financial products to actually uh, fund uh, residential solar projects actually worked, to everything in between. And I think one of the reasons that we've kind of seen seen the industry really grow up, if you will, uh, in the sense that sole or local and regional contractors are now much more sophisticated, much more savvy, and much more well-equipped, I would like to think was you know, partially due to some of our efforts and uh, kind of going above and beyond uh, to support them, whether that means offering them some sort of uh, learning management system access, access to NABCEP accreditation training, um, or access to you know some of the technical solar experts that were on our team that would literally go and do site visits and climb on roofs with uh, the guys actually doing the installs. Um, you know we we wanted to make the industry better, and I think it, it really has come a long way. You know, as to your question around Solar City, look, you know, when we were first starting the company, everyone said, "How would you? How are you going to compete with Solar City?" And our our typical response was. We don't really understand their business model, uh, and you know we're we're finance guys and should be able to really wrap our heads around their you know f- uh, financial statements. And I just I never quite got it. Um, that being said, the public equity equity markets absolutely love Solar City. It was a darling of of uh, of of Wall Street for a long time, and as a result, they were able to raise significant amounts of equity capital at very inexpensive costs. Uh, and I think much like many other companies that emerge out of the Silicon Valley Bay Area, they were really valued on top-line growth versus profitability. And uh, you know, based on the fact that public markets valued them on that metric, that's what they focused on because that's what gave them the ability to continue to raise cheaper capital. And as a result, you know, they were willing to kind of make extremely large investments in customer acquisition, just for being one example, in order to continue to show top-line growth. And I think eventually the, the broader public stock investment community had a, a shift in perspective on a lot of the companies that were coming out of this area, not just in the solar sector, but really the kind of tech technology sector in general. Of which Solar City was kind of being lumped in with these VC-backed Silicon Valley tech companies, uh, but the, the investment community started looking more towards profitability, and kind of once that that transition happened, it kind of it, it exposed certain deficiencies in their business model, and you know I think the, the rest was kind of history from there. One another thing that you can obviously look at the dramatic shift. Um, from in 2010, almost every, uh, you know, almost every rooftop that had solar on it was a PPA or lease. And then you've seen that shift over the last few years. Um, yep. Do you see um, a resurgence of the TPO or PPA or lease option with Safe Harbor? And I'd love for you to maybe explain to the audience exactly what Safe Harbor is. Yep. So, uh, in case folks are not aware, the, there's a there's a 30% or there was a 30% investment tax cr- credit associated with solar, and it's been extended multiple times in the past. Uh, and, in, and currently, legislation based on current legislation, it, it is stepping down by 4% this year. So whereas last year it was a 30% credit, this year it's 26%, uh, and next year it will step down to 22% for stepping down to zero in 2022 for uh, owner uh, or owner rooftop solar and to 10% for tax equity uh, solar. 
2022. So with the safe harbor, uh, it, it allows lease and PPA providers to continue to get legacy uh, credit levels uh, based on having uh, actually uh, 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 demonstrated a capital outlay associated with particular projects. Um, so what ultimately that means is on a relative basis, the lease and PPA provider should have a advantage as a result of that safe harbor uh, you know, for this year. And then, uh, of course, because uh, th- there'll still be a 10% tax credit on lease and PPA systems after uh, 2021, whereas there won't, there'll be a 0% credit for own systems, uh, you know, there'll be an ongoing relative advantage uh, thereafter. Yeah, so do you believe that you will see a resurgence um, of the amount of projects that are sold with TPO options versus unsecured loans? Do you see that trend starting to equalize or shift in the other direction? I mean, certainly it, it, it's going to help uh, lease and PPA regain some of their uh, lost share to the loan product. I'm not sure that it's going to be especially meaningful. Um, you know, maybe it's it's kind of a five up to a 10% market share pickup at most, um, where I think you'll see kind of the biggest uh, growth in the lease and PPA market is actually in uh, uh, based on the California new home solar mandate uh, application of lease and PPA financing to uh, support solar on new homes as required uh, beginning this year under state law. I want to take a step back for a second. Um, you had mentioned uh, solar and storage, so this is this is just something I like to le- I, I like to learn from every guest. Really, what do you think it's going to take to grow that in the next decade? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, the the economic benefit of storage. So let me actually let me step back for a second. So there's there's several drivers as to why people put solar on their house or solar and storage. Uh, my friend uh, Brian Brian Keen from Smart Power uh, often will say solar makes sense. That's S E N S E or C E N T S. Uh, different people go solar for different reasons. Right. In some cases, it's energy independence. In some cases, it's uh, sustainability and uh, uh, environmental concerns. Uh, and in recent years, it's largely been predicated on an economic value proposition. And really, there's a fourth reason in California these days with some of the issues we've been experiencing based on the wildfires and the failures that we've seen in the utility grid that have caused those fires. And as a result, in Northern California in particular, we're experiencing uh, uh, actual uh, power system shutoffs during uh, high-risk, high-wildfire-risk parts of the year. And that's, that's also been a driver for uh, batteries in particular, given it creates an extra level of redundancy when PG&E shuts off the power to your house. But uh, going back to your kind of question more broadly, uh, I, I still do think the biggest driver of adoption of solar and solar plus storage will continue to be economics. And for econ- the economic case uh, for storage to really exist, uh, it's predicated on how the utility structure, utility rate structure is designed. So in California right now, we're in net, what's called net metering 2.0, and we'll be moving to moving away to uh, 3.0 next year. And as part of that, uh, what I would expect to see happen is the rate structure design being done in such a way that. It incentivizes battery storage based on uh, the amount that is charged for power that's drawn from the grid tied to the particular time of day. In California, we're currently, as a result of the massive amount of of solar that's been deployed in the state in recent years, experiencing what sometimes is referred to to as a duck curve. Um, But what's really happening is there's a mismatch of where energy or where electricity is being consumed and where it's being produced at different times of the day. Um, so uh, it, it creates a lot of challenges to actually be able to maintain and manage the grid infrastructure itself. So you have uh, what, what's often referred to as load balancing issues. And 
the rate structures that are being uh, evaluated in in uh, California as part of the 3.0 uh, 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 development really provide should provide financial incentive to support batteries in order to ultimately deliver value to the grid itself by helping alleviate some of the pressure that's been put on it through these imbalances in in uh, load frequency. Right. That's a great answer. I, I, I think you're on the right track. Um, and yep. for those of, for those listening that, you know, are not aware, I'm, I'm sure you are, but we'll, we'll shoot, we'll shoot for this guy here. Um, with what they're calling the solar plus decade, uh, the SEIA set out on a pretty ambitious goal and they want, uh, solar energy to comprise 20% of all us electricity generation by 2030. So Eric, do you, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how you think on this. Do you see this as an, an attainable goal is it, or is it over ambitious? Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's very achievable. Uh, there is plenty of capital out there that is, you know, actually actively looking to, be deployed behind these type of projects that further that mandate. And, you know, the only, uh, the only thing that would prevent us from reaching that goal are not enough projects being brought to market. So it's, it's really a great time to be an entrepreneur within the renewable sector because really if you have a good idea and a halfway decent, not even 100% decent uh, plan for developing a particular type of project, you know, more than likely you'll be able to identify capital that's willing to support the development of that project. Right. Um, so it, ca- capital is not the issue. And in more often than not, the biggest barrier to the growth of any industry is capital. And that's not the case here. There's plenty of capital. There's not enough projects. Right. Um, so I think, I think, it's 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 been great to see just the n- number of new entrepreneurs that are taking on, you know, this this challenge to be able to meet that goal and bringing new projects, new, bringing new ideas, and, and and bringing them to kind of, uh, you know, the commercial mainstream. Right, and uh, it you know I know this is an all hands on deck situation where it's going to take everybody's efforts, you know, from sales to installs to, to financing. Uh, and it seems there is a lower barrier of entry into the industry these days, you know, just over the past few years. What do you think the biggest challenge, you know, in residential solar would be for a business trying to scale? In residential solar, by far and away, the biggest challenge is co- cost of customer acquisition. So we've seen kind of an interesting dynamic in in the area of customer acquisition uh, over the last few years. So. Uh, we, we, for a little while, we're seeing a decline in the cost that, or the amount that it costs a installer to acquire a, a homeowner as their customer, and that was really driven by uh, where we were on the on the customer adoption curve. We were really at the, the kind of early mover, uh, early adopter uh, phase of the of the transition. So these were people that didn't really have to be sold or really acquired. They were people that, in many cases, had strong uh, uh, environmental convictions, uh, and that was what was kind of driving them to make the decision to install solar on their roof. Right. And as the economic value proposition became more clear, uh, as their neighbors saw what the early adopters were doing, we, you know, we saw further cost reduction in, in customer acquisition. But you know, maybe starting about two years ago, we actually, as we kind of uh, moved moved along that customer adoption curve and moved to more of the mainstream uh, part of the curve, it became a little bit harder to actually find consumers because all the low-hanging fruit had been identified at that point, and those people had solar installations in their house, so it required more work, more effort, more creativity, and more muscle to... Uh, acquire customers, and as a result, customer acquisition costs, of course, went up. Right. And and not to mention, in in a lot of cases, the the value proposition of solar uh, has come down. Um, you know, independent of of uh, a battery incentivized rate structure in California, the value of a rooftop solar is not as much as it was for someone getting an installation today as it was a couple of years ago. 
and you know different states are kind of in different different stages of their development but uh, what's kind of interesting is there's really a, almost a positive feedback dynamic from the the trend of higher customer acquisition costs because as the customer acquisition costs go up so do the cost of the purchase of a new system for a consumer so it becomes kind of this self uh, perpetuating uh, uh, situation where it's becoming more expensive to to acquire customers because for a variety of reasons but because it's more expensive to acquire customers the cost of installing a system is more expensive which makes it uh, which makes a prospective customer less inclined to consider doing it. If that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And and I do have a question on from a marketing is that why has there not been one cohesive national marketing campaign? Even when Solar City was thirty five percent market share, I don't believe they had a cohesive marketing strategy. It was people using the different vehicles or sales funnels. Why has no one used traditional? marketing channels in this industry yet um and and uh, i'm not sure that that they haven't necessarily used traditional marketing uh, funnels i think the bigger issue is there are very unique aspects of the selling proposition based on probably uh, pr- uh, more so than anything else where that consumer actually is located uh, there's state and local incentives Every utility company uh, is going to have different retail electricity prices, different retail electricity structures, uh, and that consumer is going to have a different roof. They're going to consume different amounts of energy, and they're going to have different goals in mind when it comes to uh, why they would want to even consider making that decision. So being able to kind of tailor a one-size-fits-all one marketing approach that, that really works for every single prospective customer in every market has been very challenging. Um, and, and you know, of course, you also have the consumers that are, are going solar for reasons that are not necessarily even economically related. Uh, you know, the, the, ener- the energy independence consumers, the off-gridders, uh, the environmental-driven uh, 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 consumer. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a simple... Uh, it's not a simple narrative that can be applied to everyone, and you really have to be very thoughtful and uh, data-driven in understanding each unique consumer to be able to effectively, uh, uh, you know, present the narrative that gets them excited about you know do- doing these type of investments on their home. One of the things you did touch on is you've seen a lot of improvement um, with local contractors over the five or six years um, you've had dividend. The one thing that I have seen is that, uh, remember that I only have a view um, into this since 2015, but I've invested in about seven or eight different histories, uh, seven or eight different industries in my career. And I have never competed with as much underwhelming professionals as I have in this industry. And so that's kind of a slam on the industry. And I don't mean it to be. Um, It's a tremendous opportunity for us. But we talk about disrupting and how we need to disrupt this industry. And so the one thing I'd love to ask you is that I believe that the industry is very dysfunctional. How did it get this way? Uh, Sure. So, uh, and I wouldn't wouldn't disagree with your comment. And I, I would say it's gotten better in many ways from where it was in terms of the quality of, of the people working in the industry. But, uh, you know, I think that at least in, in the early years of solar, from dating back to the 70s until, you know, the early 2000s, really the, the entire sector was dominated by green enthusiasts that were really doing, doing their, their work for purely kind of environmentally driven uh, reasons, which is great, by the way. Um, but I think you know, in the process, uh, there probably was was some. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity that was missed by not having different perspectives in how to actually build a, a sustainable uh, business model uh, within uh, parts of the industry, uh, because you know the, the the kind of green narrative was the primary driver of the people working in the industry, and as long as they were promoting renewable energy. 
it was it was not as important that they were actually building you know uh, long-term sustainable business models and i think you know that that was that was kind of one dynamic but also a lot of rooftop solar is sold via canvassing so you know much like encyclopedias were sold or tin roofs for that matter back in the the days of our our great grandparents our grandparents uh you know, it means sales reps are going door to door, knocking on the door, and trying to pitch the the consumer, uh, you know, on a, on a cold reach out basis in person to sell solar. And look, I've I uh, when we were first starting Dividend, I spent a day in the field canvassing with one of our uh, installers just to kind of experience what that that uh, what what it's like, and you know to to kind of be a canvasser, you have to be very, very tough. You have to be very, uh, you have to have no fear of being told no, because you're told no more often than not. And it's, it's a brutal, brutal job. You're, you're on your feet for long periods of time. If you're lucky enough to be uh, invited into the home to actually make your pitch, Perhaps you sit there with the consumer for two or three hours only to be ultimately turned down and you've just wasted a third of your day. So, it, you know, it attracts a very unique type of person, many of which uh, are, are great people, um, but also uh, quite a few people that have, you know, some screws loose and, and you know, operate in ways that are, are questionable in terms of how they communicate to the consumer. So I think that's that's also been a big part of uh uh, maybe the the element that you're getting at. And, you know, on, on the actual installation side, so this is kind of the fulfillment part of projects, uh, that's where I've seen probably the most marked uh, improvement in terms of, uh, of in terms of quality. So, you know, just to kind of give you a, a, a little uh, anecdote, two of our first three employees were technical quality assurance experts because, you know, as a as a finance guy, uh, coming into the solar industry for the first time, one of my biggest concerns was the actual uh, performance of systems that we would be financing, because I, I had a, a hypothesis that uh, the underlying performance from a credit standpoint on the loans that we're giving would have a strong correlation to the quality of the contractor and the actual production of that that solar system relative to what the consumer initially expected. So if if a if an installer is doing a shoddy job with respect to the installation, and as a result, the performance of that solar system uh, does not meet what was communicated to the consumer on the front end, you know, we, we'd have a problem. So, uh, you know, we, we, we invested a lot of time and resources in kind of understanding what the existing state of workmanship quality was in, in the industry at the time. And I would say that it's, it's pr- improved quite dramatically since then. All right. And, and I will always tell you that um, I have talked to other people in the industry. And when I talk about things like standard operating process or intuitive software, um, I get the look across the table that I'm speaking Latin. And those are the <laughs> frustrating things as we scale is that I just don't yep. see the process out there um, that I've used in all the other businesses and industries I've been in. I just don't see it in this industry. And our goal is obviously to elevate. And I think that's why this is such a tremendous opportunity for freedom and for us. I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I, I gave the anecdote earlier about the, you know, really questionable sales proposal that a contractor had shown me, not because he was trying to produce a bad sales proposal, but because he was not sophisticated in developing a consumer-facing document and us kind of resultingly developing a sales proposal tool within our technology. And that's just kind of, you know, another example of that. You know, in the last five years, though, we've seen lots of sales proposal SaaS companies enter the market that really offer a business-in-a-box type solution to contractors, whether you're talking about Siten, whether you're talking about Aurora. But, you know, they, they do come at a cost. And to the extent the, the underlying contractor is, is not able to afford the cost of uh, a, a seat with one of those, those software providers, you know, the, you know, they're continuing to do kind of the thing they've done for the last five years and maybe their entire careers, and they're just not necessarily the most sophisticated operators. And it, 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 it quite frankly, poses a major risk to the 
broader industry. You know, it's really one bad actor can kill an industry. So we're very, very uh, hyper vigilant about you know ensuring that we're doing everything in our power to maintain the reputation and image of the industry more broadly. And that leads me to one of my final questions: Is that what have you done? where you've contributed to solving the dysfunction in the solar industry. And then I'd love to know if there was something that you did that created more dysfunction in the industry. Sure. So uh, let, me, let me think about the second one while I go through the first one. So I think in many ways, really everything we've done has helped solve the dysfunction. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's exceptions that I'll think of as I uh, answer your second question, but the introduction of the loan product in and of itself, I think, helped solve for a lot of dysfunction. It it really enabled local and regional contractors to be able to offer financing, which allowed them to compete against the solar cities of the world. And in many cases, the local contractor is a more efficient operator within their local market because they know local zoning laws, they often, you know, don't have a lot of overhead associated with their businesses because they're, they're smaller organizations that have, you know, an executive assistant, uh, one installation crew, and, you know, maybe one sales guy and uh, a designer. And they're able to, to install at a very low cost of uh, installation and pass a lot of that value on to the consumer. But at, at the end of the day, I think it's all about driving efficiency in any market, and the solar industry five years ago was incredibly inefficient on virtually every level, and and it's it, it still is very efficient in, in many areas, uh, in particular customer acquisition. But it's come a long way. You know, another example of what we what we've done, we partnered with NAPSEP uh, very early on to help promote, and and for those of you that aren't aware, NAPSEP is a training and certification uh, body for. Uh, electrical workers, in particular solar contractors. So we partnered with them to roll out uh, a free training program to uh, our contractor universe, which allowed employees of, of those, those contractors to get free training and then sit for the NABSEP exam uh, and get formally certified. Uh, so that's, that's another example. Um, so, uh, and I, I could probably uh, uh, go on and on here, but uh, as far as where have we uh, created more dysfunction. That's that's a tougher one. I, I, I'm sure there's small things that we've done here or there, but I think you know one of our corporate values is alignment, and and you know I think we've really embraced that as an organization in everything that we do. And you know while maybe we'll make a misstep here or there, I'm not sure there's anything that kind of has glaringly stuck out to me as where we've kind of really uh, created more dysfunction other than actually I have, I have one. So very early on, we, we had capital issues. This is in like the first 18 months we were in business for reasons that were kind of outside of our control. And there's, you know, a period of time where uh, we had, we had challenges making payments. Uh, you know, that kind of put, that put our installation partners in a precarious position for a period of time. And, you know, uh, uh, through through a lot of hard work, we were able to get through that, and uh, you know I, I don't think there was anyone that was uh, ultimately really damaged in a meaningful way as a result of it. But it was a scary time, and you know I think when there's kind of uh, uncertainty around capital in the space, that creates uh, a lot of dysfunction. And the somewhat ironic thing, without kind of giving the full story, the indirect reason for our issue actually was related to the the ultimate bankruptcy of Sun Edison and it's it's kind of several iterations removed um, but th- that was really the driver of kind of how we ended up in that situation but you know I, I think now that the industry has kind of evolved for four or five more years you don't really hear about that as much with uh, capital channels being shut off overnight um, that's not to say it doesn't happen and can happen, but it's just not something you see or hear about as frequently as you did previously. And I think the important thing is, you know, moving forward and, you know, keeping the integrity in the industry and, you know, doing what you're doing and just kind of bringing knowledge and, and experience and, you know, showing that 
doing things the right way is 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 a good thing. Yep, and you know the other thing I would say is we've been very uh, deliberate in our hiring strategy to bring people uh, in into the company that don't come from the solar industry. Um, you know, certainly there's great people out there in the solar industry, but when you don't bring a fresh perspective to how you do business and you just kind of accept the status quo as, as you know, how, how things get done is when you don't, when you end up with a situation where there's inefficiency, when there's dysfunction and there's, you know, not innovation. Right. We have the same view here. Same exact thoughts. Yep. Um, yeah. Th- and that's all great information. It's such great insights. Thank you so much. And I think uh, on that note, that's our time for the day. Great. Well, thanks again for having me on. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person next time I'm down in Temecula. Eric, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Again, we really appreciate your insight and thanks so much. Thanks for contributing to the success of the industry. And, and also thanks for uh, contributing to our show. This is a, a fun thing we're doing and we hope it's insightful for everybody. No, this is really cool. Yeah, we, we, we love doing this. So for more information on Eric and Dividend, head over to DividendFinance.com. For everything you need to know about Freedom Forever and the Solar Disruption Theory podcast, visit SolarDisruptionTheory.com. Also, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and help us share this podcast with the world. On behalf of Brett, Eric, and myself, thanks so much for listening to the Solar Disruption Theory podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Solar Disruption Theory is presented by Freedom Forever. For the latest news and updates in the solar industry, subscribe to our newsletter at freedomforever.com. Also, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Freedom Forever Solar. Freedom now. Freedom tomorrow. Freedom forever. Madden and Mitchell Media.